turn with me in your Bible to the wonderful, intriguing chapter of chapters, Revelation 19, where the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven coming in the second coming, the clouds of great glory. It's a wonderful chapter to get to uh, dive into. So we ask uh, God's blessing now on our efforts to hear from him. Now, Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your great and precious promises that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us so that we could be with him forever. And if that's the case, that he has gone through the trouble of preparing that place, he reminded us that he would come back again. Uh, and Father, we just uh, we appreciate the privilege of having your word here. And we ask that the Holy Spirit open the eyes of our hearts we may see your wonderful truth and put it into practice and be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, of all celebrations that go on here in the world, uh, weddings are perhaps the happiest of all occasions. Our hearts are filled with joy and our wallets are drained of cash <laughs> and our emotions <laughs> are stirred in profound ways. You know, people are move to tears, or you look around and glowing smiles just everywhere abounding. Uh, there's hardly a joy that can compare. Now, things are taken up a notch quite a bit, and even more intriguing when the wedding involves royalty. Now I have a slide of the recent one that will serve as an illustration. Did you know an estimated 2 billion, with a B, people, watched Kate and William exchange their vows. Um, that is an amazing thing. Two billion people very intrigued and interested. Did you know uh, that the wedding cost $60 million? And I'm not sure that dad had to pay the whole thing. And probably not. But really, that's a conservative amount for royal weddings. Did you know Charles and Diana's was $110 million? And so they're pricey affairs. You pull out the stops, you know, the whole deal, the carriage alone. Who knows? <laughs> now, uh, of course, that's not including the... Uh, let me get this right, 18-carat sapphire diamond engagement ring that Kate wore, which was Princess Diana's ring. Uh, that was $500,000 just there on the ring. Her dress was four hundred. Kate's was $400,000. The wedding cake, seven feet tall, of wonderful, delicious sugar, <clears throat> uh, 1,000 frosted flowers, and it took five weeks to make to serve those lucky 1,900 people who were privileged to be invited to take part in the lavish royal festivities. Thank you for that picture. There's a, another royal wedding that you probably heard about coming that will make the glitz and the glamour of anything Buckingham Palace has come up with pale in significance. And so uh, the Son of God, Jesus our Lord, uh, used an image of a royal wedding really to describe what the gospel's all about. 
he says that there's many truths about a wedding that illustrate the spiritual truths between his church, his people, and the Lord himself. You know, I'll just start that parable there in Matthew 22 to give us some context for where we're headed, because in Revelation 19, there's the wedding and there's the war. And so first, we're going to look at the wedding. Well, in Matthew 22, the Lord says, hey, the, the kingdom of God is something like uh, a royal wedding. And this, um, the king is throwing a wedding reception for his son, a banquet. And whoever, whosoever will may attend. It's the gospel. It's, it's the church age. It's from Pentecost all the way to the churches received up into heaven, which we call the rapture. During that time, people are being invited to this royal extravaganza. And really, if you will, um, when we say yes and trust in the Lord Jesus, what we're really doing is RSVPing uh, to be present at this wonderful royal event. Um, and like I said, two events must take place at the end. So when the king sees fit, if we're back in our story, uh, that the reception hall is as full as it's going to get, um, the conclusion of history happens as we know it, and it's time for the Lord's kingdom to come. First Peter 4, 7 says, the end of all things is near. Now, if the end of all things was near 2,000 years ago. And John, the apostle, said in 1 John that, dear children, we're in the last hour. Then we truly are right on the edge in the last seconds of human history as we know it. And so at the end of that history, uh, it culminates with these two things that we see in chapter 19. A lavish royal wedding and then a really intense war on the planet Earth. So Revelation 19 uh, divides quite nicely, and we'll look at the two things. The first 10 uh, verses, the first half, it's the time for the wedding, verses 1 through 10. That'll be our point one. And then the second half of the chapter, it's time for the war. Uh, that will be verses 11 through 21. So the wedding is called the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the war is called Armageddon, or the great supper of God. So there's a contrast going on here. Let's tackle the wedding first. One through ten. Now after this, and I just want to pause and say the, the last seven bowls of God's wrath were poured out. And this is the context. The earth is staggering like a drunken uh, man ready to fall over and flatline. All of God's judgments of the great tribulation have just been completed. And now John is speaking. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne. 
And they cried, Amen, hallelujah. Then a verse came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. By the way, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So there we have it, point number one, the wedding of the Lamb, the end of all things, brings on this hallelujah chorus, and joyful praise is heard in heaven as the evil, Christ-rejecting world is dealt with, and the celebration is approaching, and so heaven, anticipating the wedding to come and the war that's pending, that will finish all things so that God's kingdom can be established, brings on these shouts of praise. You'll notice in your text here, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And here's the reason for the, for the first hallelujah. His judgments are true and just. He, he has punished the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged the murder of his servants. And so heaven cheers. The earth is really reeling and smoldering remains. A lot of people have survived and there's still an army in Armageddon waiting to take on the Lord. So it's not like the entire planet is destroyed completely. Um, but there, there, the, the earth has been dealt a blow from which she will not recover. And then there's a loud hallelujah. Well, yes, heaven rejoices in God's righteous judgments, but never in destruction or destruction of human life, even if it's wicked. Remember the verse is uh, Ezekiel 33, verse 11. As surely as I live, says the Lord, I take no delight in the death of the wicked. I'd rather that they turn from their evil ways and live. And so if God doesn't take delight in the death of the wicked, then neither do his people or his servants. And so the reason for the explosion of the praise, at least in the beginning, is, is the song that we know, Ding Dong, the Wicked Witch is Dead, um, in that uh, the world system that kind of was the engine behind all rebellion on the earth was nicknamed Babylon, and she was given a gender, uh, and not a very nice lady at that, and she was called a prostitute. So we saw last chapter that the best way to think of Babylon was the nickname because Babylon, the Tower of Babel, the very first place that uh, rebellion 
and spiritual deception and dictatorship with Nimrod. That whole scene starts with Babylon and the Lord just nicknames Babylon throughout the Bible. 280 times it's mentioned. And so the best way to see what we're, why heaven's rejoicing is that Babylon, the great prostitute's been dealt with finally, never to rise again. Is, is that in the last day, that spirit of an, a rebellious world manifests itself, so it seems to be, from 17 and 18, in two physical things that you could look at and point at and see in the world. So in one sense, she's the spirit behind it. In the second sense, you, see, you can see the two things, entities. One would be a false church. An inst- a religious institution that just kind of pulls the whole world together and with spiritual deception, um, uh, leads people away from the Lord uh, in a spiritual, religious way that makes them feel like they can have God and their own life and sin as well. The second one is an actual city. Revelation chapter 17, verse 18 says, and by the way, this great prostitute is a real city. And the word city can mean region or even nation. And so we understand that in the last time there will be this economic superpower that that is destroyed because she corrupts the entire world with a lust and a covetousness for things and excessive luxuries and just this inward me, myself, and I, fame and fortune, idolatrous way of life that, that she feeds the world, and the whole world looks to her as the poster child for success and uh, fortune, and uh, the Lord lets her have it, because because of her, the whole world was following in her footsteps. She was the bus driver, I called her, remember the bus driver who drove the world's inhabitants on the bus off the cliff. Uh, It would be Mrs. Babylon, and that's how she's expressed. So the first hallelujah is, praise God, hallelujah, She's gone forever. And uh, that was a reason for great praise. The root that poisoned the world plucked up all the way out and burned to a crisp. The cancer that was killing the patient totally irradiated into oblivion. The leprosy that was defiling the earth just cleansed and swept away. The magic potion that made the world crazy drunk with greed and sensuality and idolatry poured out, never to be served up again, ever. And then the truth of Isaiah 9, 5. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And so the hallelujah comes, not so much that that there's destruction, but the death of evil so that the King of Kings can come and reign in this wonderful peace. Listen, you cannot have peace without the destruction of the threat to it. You don't have peace if there's something looming that can overturn that peace. So God comes and says, Babylon has fallen, 
and never again will she rise. And chapter 18 was like ode to Mrs. Babylon. Never again will you, never again will you, never again will you, never again with you six times. No more will you, no more will you, no more will you. Well, we get it, we get it, right? (laughs) Because, hallelujah, the death of evil that has reigned since the Garden of Eden and the fall of man until the, until the end, until Christ appears. Dead, on arrival, ready to flatline. And so there's just this ginormous hallelujah. It's over. No more kids strung out on drugs. No more families broken up by the other woman. No more robbing, stealing, and coming out to your car and finding an empty parking space. No more of that. No more women raped. No more. No more babies snatched out of their mother's wombs. Never again, never again, never again, never again. The whole chapter, chapter 18, never happened again. You know, throughout the world, evil's been put down a lot. But, you know, it comes at you in another way, (laughs) you know? All through the 7,000 years, it's been pushed back. It's been hammered down. It's been paid back. But it comes back. And this time, and the reason for the hallelujahs that well up in heaven is this time it's beaten down. And she ain't getting up again ever. That's a beautiful thing. You know, so they're excited. The earth is under, coming under new management, <laughs> and, and, and they're very happy about it. The first hallelujah is really about that. The second hallelujah is that it's forever. It's something that stumbles us. It says in verse 3 that the smoke of her torment rises day and night forever and ever. It doesn't stumble heaven nor will it stumble you in your perfected eternal body that the, the perish, those who perish and those who remain in evil and defy the Lord perish for eternity. The third hallelujah, number four, there, verse four, is because all people, great and small, will praise the Lord uh, in, in the world that's coming. What, what I really like about this and why I think there's a hallelujah there is because finally every mouth that opposed God, every mouth that ever spoke lies or brought up controversies or confusion, silenced. The whole world gets it and the whole world will no longer need to turn in at Easter time to MSNBC and find some scholar who doesn't even know Jesus personally tell you who is the real Jesus. Now, who do the Jews think Jesus is? And, 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 and who is the real Moses? And where's the real promised land? And, and, and guys getting up and saying, you know, if you count all the Hebrew words in the Old Testament and divide by 14 and then turn it upside down, you can trace this picture, a message from God. You know what? Could we just read the text? Maybe that's a message from God. You, you know what? What I'm saying? All of these guys who cause all my blood pressure to rise through the roof, they'll all be done. They're gone. Because it says here, out of Jeremiah 31, I'll put my law in their minds, 
write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will a man have to teach his neighbor or, or a man his brother say, Know the Lord because they'll all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Everybody will know. Everybody will be there. Everybody will be on the same page. It'll be a time for reunions. Dr. Bean's son will be reunited with Dr. Bean, our friend. We'll meet Kathy O'Daniel, who left our congregation at the hands of a drunk driver. Mom of five. She's with the Lord. Ray Van Pelt. Ray Van Pelt, most of you don't know her. That's the little old lady who loved the Lord who helped us start the church. She's there. And we'll see her. Reunions. Relationships healed. Christians who don't get along. They're not going to be in one end of heaven and the other end of heaven. (laughs) You know what? Christian marriages that fell apart. You'll be falling into each other's arms with forgiveness and healing. There's no marriage in heaven in the way we think of marriage anyway. But all hearts and all people and all things will be reconciled. I love what Jesus says about the coming kingdom. He says, at the renewal of all things. That's the word Jesus uses. He uses a lot of words for it. But he uses the word renewal. And finally here, the fourth hallelujah It speaks of the great joy anticipating the royal wedding to come. Now, uh, verse 7 paraphrased, it's time to celebrate the royal weddings at hand. Now, the bride has prepared herself, and she's been given, let me say, a dazzling gown, uh, uh, pure dazzling white. Now, by the way, the white gown, let's go with that, stands for the good works Christians have done. And the angel said to me, right, because blessed are those who are called to participate in this party. So the bride is seen, first of all. Where is she? She's not on the earth, my friends. She is in heaven. And gee whiz, how did she get there? Well, we who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord shall be caught up to be with the Lord. That's where, how she got into heaven. And when the heavens open again, that's how she gets out of heaven. She follows her Lord with the rest of the uh, angels and the armies of heaven. So the bride is seen. Now, uh, Jesus' metaphor of the bride and bridegroom is really going to help us understand some of these things. Uh, Jesus uses the metaphor of the wedding and the bride and the bridegroom, and so do the New Testament writers. Uh, The selfless, undying love Jesus has for us is like what the groom has for the bride. Here's what Ephesians 5, 25 through 7 says. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. And so at the end of chapter 5, he says, I know I've been talking about physical marriage, but actually I've been talking about Christ and the church. 
And so there's something about it. The love that Christ has for the church, for me and you. Also the obligation of the uh, husband to protect and nurture and provide. And also the oneness factor that's a mystery. That somehow the Bible says we are co-heirs. And that we shall reign with Christ. And in Revelation chapter 3, the Lord tells the church to any who overcome in his name, they will sit with him on his throne. With him on his throne. That we have thrones like his. And so somehow or another, there's that uniting that happens between the church and the Lord Jesus Christ that makes us able to administer and reign and rule with him on the same par. Of course, we know our place, but this is what the Bible is teaching, that we are united to him. I, I, I love the, the parable of the wedding, uh, Matthew 22. Let me paraphrase it to you. The kingdom of heaven is kind of like the story of a king, Jesus said, who's thrown a great wedding reception for his son. When everything was ready, he sent his servants to notify those who were invited. But one by one, everybody started making excuses and declined the invitations. So the king didn't just give up. He sent out others to tell them about his wonderful celebration. The feast has been prepared. Prime rib is on the table. Every good thing you can imagine. Please come to my banquet. But the guests he invited turned up their noses, ignored them, and went on their way. One to his home, one to his business, one to his school. Some even seized the messengers and, and insulted them and killed them just for having invited them. Well, the king was furious, Jesus said, and he sent out his army to destroy the murderers and burn their towns down. Keep that in mind, because that's what comes after the wedding that we look at. The wedding feast is ready, and the guests I invited don't consider themselves worthy of honor. So now go out to the street corners, invite everyone you see. So the servants brought in everyone they could find, whosoever would, good, good and bad alike. This is important. And the banquet hall was filled with guests, but when the king came around to greet the individual guests, he notices a guy that's not wearing the wedding robe that you're given at the entrance there. And he says, friend, how did you get in here without the wedding garment? But the man was speechless. Then the king said to his assistants, tie him up and toss him out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Great ideas that are in here that are also in the text that we have. And so in ancient times, poor people come to these kinds of uh, royal events they didn't have the right clothes. And so a garment was provided them. And you did not come in unless you were covered. And of course, this goes to stand for the righteousness that God gives his people. First Corinthians chapter 1 says, Christ has become our right standing with God, that we are clothed in an, a covering. And, and so, you know, one, the guy in the story, he's got his $400,000 handmade custom silk suit on, you know, and he's like, what's wrong with this? And the Lord says, tie him up and get him out of here. Because the only thing that makes us suitable to sit in the king's presence is what the king provides. 
which is the blood of his own son, that is the atoning work. And that, my friend, is the wedding garment, what it signifies there. Now, there's, there's a couple important things that I hope you see here in our text. The white linen robes were given her, but the white linen robes stood for her good deeds. So which is it? It's both. She prepares herself because she has something to do. We have something to do, and God has something to do. They're both very important. A good verse in the New Testament that shows the balance between what God has to do and what we have to do is Philippians 2, 13 and 14. Let me read it to you. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. You see that? You have a responsibility. It says you. Work out your salvation. Cooperate with the Holy Spirit. You, you, you have a job. I, I have faith. I have trust. I cooperate with the Lord. I have to walk through the door. I hear the message of the invite. I say, you know what? I believe that. That's a good deal. That's something I want. It does mean I have to leave this X, Y, and Z, but I'm going to go and do it. That's our work. We prepare ourselves by accepting Jesus as our Savior and to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. That is our work to do. God's work is that he covers us. It's all about that garment. It's all about the Holy Spirit's atonement over us. So, for example, the good deeds that she's done. Well, she's shared the gospel with people. But who supplied the words and the life behind all of that? Who arranged the divine appointment for that to actually happen? But it was my mouth. It was my will. I obeyed. It is a good deed, but it was done by the grace of God. And so, uh, you know, we say no to temptation. We stop sinning. We resist the devil by the power of the Holy Spirit. So all of those times I've said no, they're good deeds. I'll hear about them. But I'll also give praise to God because I couldn't have said no. I couldn't have kept the commands of God unless the Holy Spirit was helping me to crucify my sinful nature, raise me up, and allow me to produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So it's both. So you see her in, her te in this text preparing herself and being given these wonderful luminous robes that are really her good works. Now, let me throw something in that most scholars believe fits right before the wedding celebration. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5, it says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So we will stand before God, and most scholars say it's before the wedding for a reason. So while the earth is undergoing the great tribulation, we are in heaven being evaluated. They are being tested. We are being evaluated. And so we stand before the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 has a nice little way of understanding this. I've read it many times. Here's the paraphrase. Paul says the Christian has... The Christian life is like building a building. Think of it this way. We all have the same foundation. When you get saved, Jesus Christ is laid as the foundation, and the timer goes off. He says, build. And then, and then he says, if anyone builds properly, 
using good materials, gold, silver, costly stones, or whether he builds improperly with rotten wood and hay and straw, their work will be shown for what it is because that day, capital day, will bring it to light. The quality of each man's work will be tested by fire, and if what has been built survives, the builder gets a reward. If it goes up in flames, he suffers loss, but he himself shall be saved, even like one escaping through the flames. So anybody who gets that kind of deal is uh, surely relieved, I'm sure. A big, loud phew could be heard in heaven. But there's a loss of reward. Now, come on, this makes so much sense. Just because we're saved by grace doesn't mean we're all going to be rewarded and used in the life to come in the same way. A lot of people just throw, thing, throw it away and, 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 and go off the, the straight path and ruin their lives, but they still honestly are saved. And, and the Bible makes a case for that. So the judgment seat happens. Our works are, are revealed. And what is left is those white linens, our good deeds that survived the chastisement or the fires that proved our works and so we enter in to be then elevated and united to the king as co-regents with him but now purged perfected rewarded and then seen sitting at a table uh, celebrating a union with him and that's really what uh, scholars think happened. We don't know when that judgment seat happens, but let me assure you, it will happen. And it makes good sense to have it happen right there because we're going to be coming back with him kind of completed. And so uh, that's why it makes sense there. So our works are tested, we're perfected, rewarded, crowned, and then united with Christ. So the judgment seat is accomplished the wedding of the lamb complete now it's time for jesus and his church to take care of business that would be armageddon now armageddon got introduced back in chapter 16 and verse 16 but we we saw the nations gathering we saw the false prophet the devil and the antichrist with demon spirits coming out of their mouths to deceive the kings of the earth to draw them into the place called Megiddo, the Valley of Megiddo. And here they are, but we didn't get to finish the story. The finished story starts now. Verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose riders called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. <clears throat> he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the lake, the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Well, now to the war. We've seen the wedding and the hallelujahs, and now we see the horror of the war in one sense. Tennyson put it this way. It's inscribed on some of the buildings in Washington, D.C. That one far-off divine event toward which all creation moves. It's the day. It's the time. We knew it was coming because Revelation opened with uh, kind of a spoiler alert to tell us, uh, here it is, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him and all peoples on the earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be, amen. So we knew it was coming and it's kind of been the theme Enoch, the seventh from Adam, the seventh guy created from Adam, way back at the dawn of creation. Enoch, number seven, says this. He says, see the Lord, I see him coming through the clouds with great glory, with thousands upon thousands of his saints, his holy ones. So really, this idea, starting here at verse 11, is the culmination of 66 books, 40 different authors, over 1,800 years, one story, the King of Kings is Lord of Lords, and he is coming to make things right. And now the king in our story didn't take very lightly to those who snubbed his gracious invitation, He wasn't pleased with those who ignored him, mistreated, and killed some of his messengers, and he he made a promise. He was enraged, and he he promised he's going to send his army to destroy those murderers who did not accept the invitation and, and killed those who tried to present the invitation. Uh, Ready or not, it's time. Here they come. And clearly, they're not. Really, you have two choices in this chapter. And pardon me for being a little irreverent, but you you have the choice of to be on the guest list or to be on the menu. (laughs) I prefer the former rather than the latter. Amen? (laughs) So a big contrast here, isn't it, from the day... The days of a humble birth, a baby boy born in a barn to two poor peasant 
parents who, when you say something mean to him, he says nothing back. When you spit in his face, he turns the other cheek. When they come to get him, to crucify him for no crimes he committed, he lays down willingly. When they insult him, he doesn't insult back. He says, I am meek and lowly and hard and gentle. Boy, what a contrast. But he did kind of try to give them a heads up. Remember at the trial, the high priest said to him and put him under oath, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said, yes, it is as you say. And just so you know, in the future, you will see me coming on the clouds, seated next to the almighty God, coming on the clouds with great glory and honor. Well, this day has come. No longer Jesus meek and mild, but Jesus king of kings through the clouds with great glory. So let's just walk through this, just just an awe-inspiring few verses here. Uh, First of all, his uh, unreproachable character. Uh, He's described here our great God and Savior once again to kind of exonerate him from all wrong because we're going to see this tremendous bloodbath. And just so you know, number one, he's his name, faithful and true, genuine and, and dependable in the Greek, that he is a hero. Uh, His character can never be uh, uh, maligned because this is the point of being uh, faithful and true. There's no vindictiveness in this return, and there's no lust of conquest. He's saving his people. Remember what he said? The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. You know, he's faithful and true, and he wages war with justice. In other words, he's faithful, he's true. This is a just cause. He is doing nothing wrong, but everything right. Because the true obligation of love is to protect from evil. If a hero doesn't protect from the villain and lets someone go unhelped in harm's way, is not a hero anymore. So that's the point of the beginning, is that he's a good God, he's a loving God, and he's a just God. You know, that bumper sticker, and I just saw it the other day, heading in towards Sebastopol, what a surprise, but it said, it said, who would Jesus bomb? So I turned down the window, you know, (laughs) and I just say, Revelation 19, They just kept going. <clears throat> and I would say they were driving much faster than before when, yeah. Who would Jesus bomb? Answer. Very good question. Answer. Anybody who would look at his blood on the ground and step on it and spit on it and say, you know what? I don't need you, God. I got here on my own. I don't need you. I don't need your blood. I don't need your son. And I'll do life any way I feel like it. Yeah. Sorry. That's the answer to your question. 
And it's right and good and just and loving. It's all consistent. That's why he says this just right from the start. Just want to tell you his name. It's good, faithful, just, true hero. He's come to save. Amen? Eyes blazing with fire. That just means he searches out all things. He knows everything. He will judge the secrets of men's hearts. Romans 2 and 16. He will judge the secrets of men's heart and thank the good Lord, and I mean that with all my heart, that our secrets are atoned for. They're covered, but their secrets are unatoned for. Therefore, they shall be uncovered, you see. That's the eyes, blazing fire. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13, if you're taking notes. Moving on to his unparalleled authority, the many crowns. These, the Greek word there is not Stephanos, like the wreath. This one's the one that kings wear. That's why people say in Revelation chapter 6, the rider on the white horse has a wreath. He doesn't have the diadems. So we saw that as the Antichrist conquering out to rule with deception. This is the king of kings coming to reign and rule in power. And so, and, and written on him, and by the way, uh, it doesn't say on him in the Greek. It just says he has a name written. And the thought for thought translations help you with readability and say on him. But if you go to the ESV, it leaves it awkward the way it ought to be. There's no on him. So what scholars say is it's probably written on the crown. John does not see or he can't understand what the name is. And the point of it is this. There's more going on with God than all of us can ever understand. That he has a name known only to himself means this. Jesus, the name you know him by, is a job description name. You shall give him the name Jesus because he's got a job to do. He shall save his people from their sins. That's what his name means. How about in 10,000 years when, we, when we're way past the need for a savior to lay down his life for us? We're going to have a new name because gone are those days. He's not rescuing us anymore. We don't need to be rescued anymore. We're rescued for eternity. Done. Hard to imagine. There's a new name we're going to hear. He probably gets a, reveals a new aspect of him in every phase of eternity. I think that's something to think about. And then the robe dipped in blood. His sad regret. I loved you all. I suffered for you all. I paid for you all. I paid the price so that none of this that's happening right this second had to happen. So that you could be with us behind me and not in front of me. That's my blood. There's no bloodshed in heaven from where he's coming. That's a symbol of the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. His mercy, his compassion. Why wouldn't you listen? Why wouldn't you be reconciled? You didn't need to be down there. You could have been at this feast. 
My blood shed for you. I wanted all men to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. I bled for you, but you spurned my grace. You profaned and trampled over me and my blood and outraged the spirit of grace. I love what it, when hymn says, and we've been singing it lately, crown him with many crowns. It says, rich wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. In other words, go ahead, anybody down at Armageddon, raise a nasty finger and accuse our Lord of doing something inhumane. Go ahead. And he's going to say, did I show you my own blood so that none of this could happen? But you didn't want that. And may I show you this? You know what it feels like for God Almighty to be nailed to the tree that he created? Just let me show you, excuse me, let me show you the side where a sword went through me for your sins, sir. Well, the hands suddenly go, oh, (laughs) I, I guess it's not okay to accuse God of wrongdoing. The blood's right there, the scars to prove. He comes to judge only those who wouldn't be covered and cleansed and loved and accepted. Leon Morris, love him. He's there. I can't wait to meet him. I'm going to ask everybody one by one, are you Leon? Are you Leon? You Leon? I mean, we got a lot of time. Well, all right. (laughs) In Revelation, here's what Leon said. In Revelation, John repeatedly makes the point that it is in his capacity as the lamb who was slain that Christ conquers He overcomes, therefore, not by shedding the blood of others, but by shedding his own blood. And in short, the robe dipped in blood says this, in the power of suffering love, Christ rides forth conquering. That's what that robe says. And now to his another name. There are four names given for the Lord. The word of God. The Logos is a hard word to understand. And what it means is this. The communication of God, the speech of God, the, that which emanates, the, the divine energy, the, the, the will, the essence, the radiance of God. So in the beginning was the Logos, the word, and the word was with God, and the word, the Logos, was God. It's the essence of who God is, and that essence of who God is got into a human womb. And out was revealed the God-man. So you have the written word of God, you have the spoken word of God, which is happening now, and then you have the living word of God. He is the word of God. And you'll notice there's no weapons. Nobody has weapons except the Lord. It's not a traditional weapon. It's really just his words, his mouth. And so the Lord speaks, and it's the word of God. And what has the word of God been likened to in the New Testament? The word of God is as sharp as a two-edged sword. You see, in Ephesians chapter 6, we're told that the only offensive piece of the armor is what? The word of God. Because Jesus used it to defeat the enemy when the enemy was attacking him. It is written, it is written, it is written. It's the only offensive weapon we have is the word of God. And he is it. 
So why should we try to make the word of God more politically correct? He's a person. The word of God is living and alive. It's active. It's him. So we can't make it. We can't twist his arm and, and, and break it off and make him say something he isn't willing to say because the word of God is a living being. It's the Lord. And I love here that verse 8 where you would see really the sword strapped to his thigh. There's nothing there except the name King of Kings. So everybody's looking, well, where's the sword? Where's the sword, man? Where is it? Where's it? It just says King of Kings. You know what? I don't need a sword because my name is King of Kings and I am the sword. I am the word of God. The word of God is likened to a sword. I just speak and it's my weapon. So you look to see his weapon and on his thigh it's written, not just king, not just Lord, but King of Kings and Lord of lords, because he's the word and he's the weapon. You know, one word from the Lord was enough to calm hurricane, gale force winds, whatever. One word from the Lord and, and a legion of demons fled. One word. One word to a leper. He said, if you're willing, oh, if you're willing, Lord, you could make me clean. He says, I'm willing. Done. One word from, uh, to heal the Roman centurion's servant who was on his deathbed. The guy said, just say the word. Man, you don't have to come like we talked about last week. You don't have to come to my house. You're the Lord. Just say the word. It'll be fine right here, right now. One word. And he did. One word. And Lazarus came forth. He raises the dead. So he's going to speak one word to the kings of the earth. 200 million strong have gathered there. One word. And now I, I often wonder what that word will be. And I have some suggestions. I don't know that the Lord is open to my suggestions. But <laughs> I like the, like, no, never mind. <laughs> Last few verses and then we're done. Some, un, some necessary unpleasantries, 17 through 21. So the beast and his various helper and the nations he deceived have had their little day, and it's time to put them in their places. So the Antichrist and the false prophet have met their match now, and they must be overthrown. So first, what do we see? We see an angel going right up in front of the sun, and he's shouting out, to, he's, he's, he's summoning the birds of the air. Now, since you just laughed about a minute ago, I'm going to try you one more time. All right, so the angel's in the sun, and he's summoning all the birds. And so he sends out a tweet to the <laughs> birds. You guys laugh so much better than first service. Thank you, and I like you better now. All right, the, the birds get the signal, and every buzzard and vulture and eagle and hawk and gull and owl and nasty raven... Not one on this planet that's left, that survives, will resist that summons. And so there they are in the Valley of Megiddo. We'll see it when we go to Israel, if we make it that far, with the Lord not coming before that. And the skies start to darken, and the frenzied sound of their croaking back and forth in eager expectation of the lunch prepared before them. You know the movie, The Birds? 
I'm gonna make that look like a, some kind of Disney cartoon. It's gonna be very, very nasty. And, and, and do you hear anybody say, look up and go, uh-oh. No, they don't do that. They look up and they see the Lord and they lock and load. Now, I've said this many times before. The dumbest move in the Bible recorded from cover to cover of anything stupid anyone's ever done in the whole history of the universe is in verse 19. They look and for whatever reason, they all gathered, you know, it was all demonically inspired to get the kings of the world into Israel, probably to destroy Israel, but it doesn't say. They don't even get to fire a weapon. They're there. They change whatever reason got them there. Now they see the Lord. And the false prophet and the Antichrist convince the armies, the human armies, let's take him out. He's the problem. There he is. And they get him in the crosshairs. And, you know, that ought to tell somebody something, too. (laughs) You know, there's the cross. There's Jesus. It's like it didn't work the first time. You know, (laughs) probably shouldn't pull it. And uh, they don't get an opportunity to... Uh, verse 19, then I saw the beast and the king, kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider of the horse. They know who he is. And, and um, Psalm 2 already saw this coming. But surprise, verse 20, uh, the Antichrist, who's called the beast, is forcibly captured along with the sidekick, Mr. False Prophet, who duped the entire world uh, with his little magic show to follow in a, and love dear leader, taking his mark, 666. They have the awful, terrible distinction of being the very first occupants of hell. Not even the devil is in hell yet. Not even a demon Hell is not open yet. Hades is open, and it's hot there. But Hades is just a holding place for until the resurrection at the end of the age where the wicked de- dead come and stand before the great white throne. And then hell is really officially open. But these two, or these two, God's going to make an exception. And he throws them live. So in other words, they're in their human bodies when they go in. Of course, they don't remain that long in human bodies, but then that is called the second death. And so just a terrible, terrible scene, terribly deserving. Um, and, and here's how, and I close with this paragraph I'm going to read from John Phillips, just a great commentator. just love how he put it, kind of rehearsed the scene that we've just talked about. Uh, then suddenly it will all be over. In fact, there will be no war at all in the sense that we think of war, there will be just one word spoken from him who sits astride the great white steed. Once he spoke a word to a fig tree and it withered away. Once he spoke a word to howling winds and heaving waves and the storm clouds vanished and the waves fell still. Once he spoke to a legion of demons bursting at the seams of a poor man's soul and instantly they fled. Now he speaks the word, and the war's over. The blasphemous, loud-mouthed beast is stricken where he stands. The false prophet, the miracle-working windbag from the pit of hell, is punctured 
and quieted. The pair of them are bundled up and hurled headlong into the everlasting flames. Another word, and the panic-stricken armies reel and stagger and fall down dead. Field marshals and generals, admirals and air commanders, soldiers and sailors, rank and file, one and all, they all fall like dominoes. And the vultures descend and cover the scene. Thus ends the Battle of Armageddon, and now for a thousand years, there'll be peace on earth after that. Men will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, their tanks into tractors, and their missiles into silos for grain. The ages will roll by, and the words for war in human speech will become archaic fragments of a language dead to mankind. And then he closes with a little <coughs> fun little thing. One can picture a schoolboy reading an ancient book sometime during the second half of the millennium. Hey, Dad, he says, what is an intercontinental ballistic missile? To which the father says, I don't know, go ask your mother. <laughs> then the mother being questioned answers and says, I think it's some kind of cabbage. Um, go and ask your dad. And then uh, John Phillips says, what a day that will be. Hallelujah and amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are awed by your word. We receive it for what it is, not the word of men, but God breathed for prophecy never had its origin in men, but holy men moved by God, carried along by the Holy Spirit, have communicated the radiance and the essence and the glory of God through the written word. Now, living word who stands among us, be pleased to dwell in our hearts in a full, fresh way, helping us to take these truths to heart, to let it burn out the dross and give us the fear of the Lord we need and a motivation to lead others to you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.